the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. The show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Kyle Leone here, your host for another week, and what a week it is. We've got a musical episode here on The Gory Days. I think I've mentioned it one or two times before, but there is a huge lack of horror musicals in the world. Uh, today, if you're looking at the episode title, we're talking about 2007's Sweeney Todd, the uh, only cinematic adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical, as far as I'm aware of, by Tim Burton, starring... The great and controversial Johnny Depp, unfortunately, very recently is, uh, I don't know, many of you are aware, but it is awful. He's been asked to leave Fantastic Beasts, um, and I'm not sure how my guest feels about it, but maybe we'll get into it. Uh, why don't I introduce her? Since I'm back to guests, I've got a fantastic guest here today. She's based in Toronto, Canada, but she's no stranger here to the States. This is her first time here on The Gory Days, but I don't know if she's done any other podcasts. Let's ask her. Please welcome actor-singer Christine Aziz. Welcome to The Gory Days. Thank you so much, Kyle. Very excited to be here. Uh, Oh, I'm glad. I've I've done some podcasts before. Um, Oh, you have? Awesome. Yes. Not not many, uh, but I haven't done a horror podcast before, so this is a first. This is exciting. Okay. Are you a big horror fan? Is that kind of like your genre? Uh, I wouldn't say it's my genre, but it's definitely something I appreciate. And I love that you chose Tim Burton because I'm a huge fan of his. And I love like all the horror musicals that I've seen and one that I've been in, I have really loved. So. Yes, I'm great that uh, you we were able to connect on the guest. Thank you, Paris, again, friend of the show, for connecting us. Yay, because, Paris! Uh, yeah, seriously. Um, uh, because musicals I haven't really gotten a chance to talk with people about because it's a horror movie podcast. And like I said, there aren't many horror musicals. And I, not to steal your thunder, but I have a bit of a musical pedigree of my own in high school and stuff. I used to do, you know, a lot of acting and stuff. And there was, um, I was in the drama class and we had uh, a day where for whatever reason, I think it was because the movie was coming out, my drama teacher played the movie Sweeney Todd for us, like the recording of, I forget which recording it was. It was the one with Angela Lansbury. Oh, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, where, where she has a very different take on Mrs. Lovett. Much more like, hello, Gavna. <laughs> um, but, um, that was great. <laughs> I, it, it was great. It's a totally different interpretation, but no less like nuanced. Um, and I remember falling in love with that version, and then they gave us an assignment. It was like, you can either write a report on the musical that you watched, or you can go watch the movie and write a report on how they compared and so I chose to go watch the movie as like a group with my friends. And I I don't know, Christine, I wasn't at the time very happy with Johnny Depp's decisions um, oh. compared to like the more bigger baritone things. Because I had internalized after watching the uh, stage version that I would be a perfect Sweeney Todd. Yes. And I was so excited till I, I remember talking to my drama teacher about like, can we do Sweeney Todd? And him saying, no, we're high schoolers. That's not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> oh, like it's too gory. It's too, it, uh, it's okay. too gory. And then, you know, like the Lucy subject matter at the beginning, like it's, it's just, it wasn't yeah. appropriate. He deemed, which I think he made the right call. It's like right. Rocky horror, you know? 
So were you able to watch like the original Broadway production? Is that what you're talking about? Like I think so. It must have been a recorded, yeah, oh, like wow. you know how they'll record the whole thing, a three hour tape or something. We saw half of it in our oh, period. <laughs> very cool. Because the original Sweeney is actually Canadian, Len Cariou, and he won the um he won the Tony Award and he's the dad, like the patriarch on Blue Bloods. Oh but, wow. So he was the original Sweeney Todd. Oh my God! With small Angela world. Lansbury, yeah. So from Winnipeg, I actually did not know that. I mean, my parents are huge Blue Bloods fans, so they watch that show all the time. And sure. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's Canadian. And that sounds like a good parent show. Yeah. That's funny <laughs> it though. It is truly. <laughs> what a crazy coincidence! So, do you have a relationship to Sweeney Todd from your I, past? I actually like. I loved the film, and I went out and saw it in theaters. Um, and I also saw the touring production in Toronto after they revived it, and like Patty Lapone played um, Mrs. Lovett, and where all the actors played their own instruments as well as singing. So I saw oh. that in Toronto. That was a long time ago, so I don't remember it as vividly as uh, as I'd like to. But yeah, I I'm that- a huge fan of Sondheim and. And oh, me I too. Said, yeah. That that was something that struck me right away was the complexity of this music. Like mm-hmm. um, music composition is my background and just the like dissonance yes. and how crunchy it is for so much of it. Yeah. Um, but before we get into Sweeney Todd and my musical history, <laughs> I'd love to know about yours because yours, frankly, is much more impressive. You've been all over the place. Well, I've yours is impressive too, but I um, <laughs> I have to say that I used to get up and sing on like the fireplace and I would make up songs. I would try to like, I would be very serious and really into it. And then my dad would say, okay, like time to like finish our recording now. Cause my dad would could, like record me on the hi-fi stereo, but I did all the like musicals in grade school. And then in high school, um, did some musicals. We did an original musical called girls in the gang. That was um, about Canadian gangsters which was a lot of fun. And then I went on to do Reefer Madness, which was right. the Canadian premiere, which was a ton of fun. I played May, which was played by um, Anna Gasteyer in the sh- like the Showtime version that starred, um, oh my gosh, his name is escaping me, um, wonderful British actor, um, and he was the narrator. But I got to kill my lover with a garden hoe so that was a lot of fun on stage. So and Reefer Madness. Yeah. I, 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 I've, if for anyone who's not familiar, it's kind of a lampoon on the 50s, like uh, PSA that was demonizing marijuana. Yes. Right? Yep. And this kind of like lampooned it, turned it on its head and leaned into kind of the absurdities of like marijuana will make you make microwave exactly. the baby. <laughs> It'll make you do all these extreme things. And the DVD, like it actually comes with the bonus feature of that original uh, black and white film. Oh, great. And yeah, so the musical obviously is a parody of that and just how the evil demon reefer will make you murderous and homicidal and do all these crazy things. So it was it was a lot of fun to do. The music's fantastic. And um, yeah, doing some stunts was great. And then there was like the magical brownie song um, <laughs> where, where Jimmy, the lead character, like he's going on a trip 
because of the the uh, reefer. So yeah. of course, of course. Yeah. Um, no, I feel like Dare kind of took the baton on that of like you know all drugs are bad and the war on drugs and it isn't until like the most recent election at least in America that look at Oregon decriminalizing all drugs mm-hmm. and Colorado following suit. It's kind of funny to see like the fifties leading into the like Reagan war on drugs opening up to finally maybe decriminalizing that and letting some of those people out of prison. Who knows? Yes. Not to get political. Um, <laughs> but I want to circle back. Did you say that you did an original musical? Yeah. So we did an original be- musical, um, but not like something that I wrote. Um, oh, okay. And then, yeah. Cause that's and what I wanted to ramp up I, to. <laughs> well, I actually did an original musical, um, later after high school. And that was something that I, um, I wrote myself and with help, from friends who are musicians and composers like yourself. So I basically hummed the tunes and then they instrumentalized them. Kind of like Michael Jackson. Oh, is that, (laughs) I didn't know that was his method. I thought that was, that was like Lady Gaga does that too. I've heard. Maybe, Um, but I do know the story is that Michael Jackson would have a tape recorder and just kind of go like, (laughs) and then hand it to his instrumentalist and his composers and they would do something with it. Okay. That, That was a good impression there. Thank you. But you're talking about elementary, right? I am talking about elementary, yes. Um, So that was basically based on my awkward preteen years growing up in the 90s. And the character was Ella Salmon, made fun of and called Salmonella. So Ah, I wore a lot of like... That's rough. Really, yeah. So I wore a lot of like really loud colorful clothing to evoke the feel of the 90s use some 90s music like there's a school dance montage scene and um i also had a song called booby buds blues because Mm. i was one of the last girls in my class to get a bra i just wasn't developing as fast as i wanted to so that was part of the show as well and how personal yeah t-ball and and just uh filling out and fitting in i guess were the two main themes of that show (laughs) so it was like a one person show period piece yes that you wrote and starred in that's awesome yeah it was a lot of fun and then i so i did it in toronto and also in winnipeg and um it was something that i didn't intend to write a kid's show but a lot of um, parents brought their children to come and see it and were very moved at some parts by it. So it was pleasantly surprising how it was well-received um, in that regard, like that it could be sort of a piece that says to kids, hey, it's okay to be different or it's okay to be a little weird and don't worry so much about fitting in because everything will be okay. <laughs> Just How yourself. many performances did you do of that? Um, in total, probably about maybe a hundred. Oh my God. Like over at, at like four different theaters. So I did it like a few times in Toronto and um, as well as in Winnipeg. And what was that first time? Like it was every time was really nerve wracking. <laughs> um, but it was the first time was very scary. Um, oh. I like bit down on my tongue a lot because I had worked with a speech therapist. I, I had lost some of my upper register from other performances and I learned that that was because of speaking improperly um so I bit down on my tongue to help like with the dry mouth and the nerves and everything and I it it was like being in a whole other world like being up on stage completely by myself for the first time so I I was without having 
Just get through it. <laughs> There's no other actors to work off of. There's not even another like director or writer you can point to yes. at the end. It's like, well, it's at least, yeah. you know, it's not really my decision. <laughs> totally. And the other scary thing that I was, I was very resistant to throughout the like rehearsal process with the directors, like you got to look at the audience and like involve oh, them. And, and I was like, no, I, I would much rather just, you know, look out into the, the abyss where you, all you see are lights but instead, that was part of the show with a little bit of audience participation. So that was also an extra level of fear that I had to confront the fact that I was be by myself and then also um, having to look at the audience, too. Yeah. And rather than, you know, doing the trick where you like look above their foreheads right. and stuff. But like that must I. I I wonder from the outside looking in, having experienced something so vulnerable like that, the perspective that must give you, like that must have just been a breakthrough for like, well, if I can do that, I can do anything. I can debase myself anyway. Yes. <laughs> it's true because I thought if if I can perform by myself, like uh, I'll be super confident. And it's funny, like you're, you still get anxious and you're still, oh, uh, even now because we've been so long in this quarantine, I fear how nervous I'll be like when stage work does come back, that it'll yeah. be a completely new uh, experience. So it yeah. does, it does kind of feel like quarantine started as like this great equalizer where like everyone who didn't have maybe all of the financial faculties to like rent out a big set and studio and stuff, everyone's forced to do it in their home. Yeah. But with how long it is, I'll just use my I statements with how long it is. Yeah. I've been invited to like do some uh, work on set in the next couple of weeks and I'm rusty. It's yeah. been like nine months since I've like interacted with people. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I know. And even just to have a conversation and, and, and <laughs> yeah. like, I do, I forget a lot of things. Like I, I think it's just the COVID brain where you're, you're not really sure what's what and what day yeah. is it and all of that confusion that comes along with it. So. Where, yeah. where like your wardrobe changes and like, I don't know about you, but I've shifted to pretty much sweatpants 24 seven. I don't yeah. need my old work clothes anymore. Definitely. <laughs> just everything like from the top up is, or like just from the top to your waist is totally it's totally like professional and then the rest is up to you whatever so i know you've got some things in the works i don't know how much we're allowed to talk about them but uh did, did, sure yeah did, we can talk about them i don't have anything, okay well i don't have anything really top secret okay yet well i know paris has uh something in the works and yes. i don't know how much uh she's given me the permission to talk about oh, it okay that's um, true but yeah, I th I've understood that you've got involved in like it's a scripted podcast that you're yes. working on. So like I guess most like a radio play. Oh. Um, so episodic. Um, obviously, since we can't all be together, um, we have like she's written these really funny and, and really compelling like a radio drama. So six episodes so far. Um, so we'll be recording that soon and then stay tuned for when that'll be launched. And then earlier in the pandemic, I was doing a sketch show, the homemade sketch show. Um, so that was something that everyone could do from their home. And then we had an editor who was editing the sketches and adding in some fun like backgrounds or sound effects and just cutting it all together. Uh, so yeah, that was something that kept me busy and was an opportunity to like work with people without having to be with them in person. That seems like a great way to keep to stag, uh, to keep away the cobwebs during COVID. Definitely. Thank you again for connecting me with Shara. I talked with her about oh, that's that. Great. Uh, 
Yeah, the homemade sketch yeah. show. It it was. Uh, we should definitely put that in the episode description because it's it's kind of an answer to uh, Saturday Night Live at home, yes. where they were having that period where they obviously couldn't film because of COVID, and they had all of the actors doing their sketches in their own homes. Yeah, and it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Some <laughs> of them were better than others, and Shara kind of felt that way too. Yeah. So yeah, the homemade sketch show came about, and it was it's like a half an hour, fifteen episodes, and it was done every Friday, uh, where people like you would put together these tight little skits, uh, skits mm-hmm. to like produce in your own home and then they would edit them together with a host and even a musical guest. I was really impressed. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was really cool. It was really cool for me. Um, and as a viewer as well, because I didn't know what was going to be on the show and, um, you know, I might have known of the host, but not necessarily known their, like their particular style and then seeing them, whether it was like a comedian or an actor and see what they came up with was super fun. So I was watching it with fresh eyes every time. Oh, interesting. You weren't, I was under the impression that it was kind of collaborative and that you would all have maybe like a zoom meeting to talk about sketch pitches and then go off. Interesting. It was sort of, that was the original intention, but it's just because like with the pandemic, everyone's at different levels of coping and you know, just, just get a sketch together was like a colossal task. Um, I know some weeks I felt more motivated than others. So Shara like was, or is like sort of our artistic director who, who brings it all together and decides like which sketches will be in along with the editor. So yeah. And it was kind of of a a treat to see like, Oh, what's going to be on this week. I love the Jacinda one, honestly, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that, but (laughs) New Zealand's, Best prime minister, the only, the best, the sanest leader in the world at the moment. We got to get more females in power. Oh, did Paris just wander into the studio? I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we pivot over to uh, the movie we're talking about today, Sweeney Todd? So, uh, as I mentioned, let's get into how this movie got made really quick. So a brief history of Sweeney Todd, if you do uh, Wikipedia research on this movie, you would be uh, allowed to think that the first instance of this story came out, it came about in 1936 by a, uh, it was a drama by George King. But I discovered that the first instance of Sweeney Todd actually appears in 1846 by an anonymous author in uh, magazines. And it was called The String of Pearls, A Romance. Yes. And it was like penny dreadfuls or something. These like you you could buy for a penny these little serialized stories. And I have to imagine that's where a lot of like maybe even Jack the Ripper and stuff kind of got their starts before they had formal titles like... um, I'm trying to think who are the other people from that era, the Hound of Baskerville. (laughs) Yeah, that's Sherlock Holmes. There you go. Anyway, um, so a year later, a stage play gets written based on that magazine uh, story called The String of Pearls or The Fiend of Fleet Street, which is where we get Fleet Street. And then almost 100 years go by, 1928, a silent film is made by Walter West called Sweeney Todd. And then about 10 years after that, the drama horror that I referred to uh, it comes out called Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which introduces, um, or no, I'm sorry, the next iteration of it, which came out in 1973 by Christopher Bond, is what introduces for the first time Sweeney Todd's motive. Because I guess up until then, he had just been a greedy meanie. 
and now he finally got the background oh, of being wrongfully okay. imprisoned right. and having like a revenge motive. Right. Almost like oh, Machiavellian. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So then in 1979, Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler write a musical of it. I was surprised to know that in, uh, in 1997, Showtime did a TV show, movie, and now we've got the Tim Burton film. Cool. And where are all the other musical horrors since yeah. 2007? It's 2020 <laughs> now, and I can't point to any musical horrors. And like, I'm sure there may be some in the indie circuit that you know passed by me, but I'm still surprised that we haven't seen more in mm-hmm. the like 13 years because this movie did really well. Yeah. So anyway, Tim Burton sees the play in 1980 as a Cal art student in London, falls in love, and then moves on with his life and just goes does other movies and stuff. Meanwhile, director Sam Mendes was working on a film version for several years, but oh. left in 2005 to direct Jarhead. Oh, womp okay. Womp. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, did not do as well, unfortunately. Even though I love uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Jarhead. It was great. So uh, Burton leapt at the opportunity to take over the project in 2005, and he and writer John Logan reworked the script, filmed it in February in 2007 at Pinewood Studios in London, and the movie was finally released in December of 2007, and then worldwide in January and February of 2008, accumulating a worldwide total of over $152 million. Wow. So why aren't there more? Yeah. It was nominated for a bunch of awards. It even won some Golden Globes. Ooh. Yeah, we do need more, like, bring out like evil dead the musical the movie yes <laughs> honestly that that's one of the things that drew me to it and it's what drew johnny depp to it was the idea of a musical about a serial killer a mm-hmm. horror musical that's what drew me it was yeah. so fascinating yeah or do so assassins if, assassins the movie mm-hmm. or even Another i mean sondheim musical <laughs> i'm i'm frankly surprised there must be some like uh high school original productions of you know like friday the 13th the musical and mm. halloween the musical yes but i'm surprised these haven't been bigger you know in the industry mm-hmm. considering what a money-grubbing franchise yeah. all of those are scream the musical the movie scream the musical <laughs> the movie <laughs> <laughs> Yes. That's funny because I always think of like a musical. I skip over the theater part of musical and just go straight to the movie. But um, I haven't seen that many modern musicals. The most recent I saw was Beetlejuice. Oh, and yeah. I, have I you seen want, it? I wanted to see it and I had an intention to see it. But then the pandemic happened and I was living <sighs> in New York. And so it like obviously everything closed and then I left New York but yeah sure I saw it in January I think yeah so like right before everything fell apart yeah but that takes huge leaps and liberties with the movie so I to I would almost want an original story if they were to take you know like a franchise like Friday the 13th or something I wouldn't want them to redo the movie and then take a million liberties and leaps to like introduce characters who get their own arias for no reason. Right. <laughs> like I don't, I want Pamela Voorhees to get a song, but I don't need uh, like the camp counselors to all get a song. Anyway, <laughs> let's get into my first segment for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. I'll quickly summarize what happens in what the hell just happened. <laughs> so in 1831, a barber named Benjamin Barker, committed the crime of having a beautiful family. He lived with his wife, Lucy, and their daughter, Joanna, and falsely convicted and exiled to the continent of Australia, 
By the evil and corrupt Judge Turpin, Benjamin adopted the alias Sweeney Todd while rotting in prison for over 15 years. Now it's 1846, and he's back with a vengeance. He returns to his barber shop on Fleet Street, which sits above a pie shop owned by sweet old Mrs. Lovett. She reveals Turpin also raped Lucy, which led her to poison herself. So Turpin adopted Joanna, and naturally, Sweeney Todd vowed sweet revenge, even more than he already had. So after killing another barber who recognized him, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Sweeney Todd and Mrs. Lovett incidentally adopt his child assistant, Toby, and then the two decide to continue killing people who come in for shaves and turning them into meat pies, like you do. He built, even builds an intricate chair chute that drops victims straight through to the basement. And he even gets Judge Turpin to come in, but he misses his chance, gets mad, and goes on a killing spree for who knows how long. Meanwhile, Anthony, a horny sailor who's also in love with Joanna, <laughs> searches all over London and breaks her out of an asylum slash prison that Turpin had her locked up in. And skipping a lot of things, in the end, Sweeney Todd ends up killing an old crazy beggar lady who came sniffing around the barbershop just in time to send her down the chute as Judge Turpin came in. And Todd finally kills him too. Uh-oh, Todd goes down to the basement and discovers that the beggar woman he killed was his wife, Lucy, all along. Dun, and dun, he dun. burns Mrs. Lovett for lying. Yeah. <laughs> as he cradles Lucy's dead body, Toby comes up and slices his throat with his own knives. The end. <laughs> Happy ending. Happy ending. It's so dark. <laughs> yeah, it is It's very so dark. sad. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, so, so I had seen the first half of the musical before going in. So I did not know the ending of the musical when I went into the film. I remember gasping out loud when we come to realize what Sweeney Todd has realized. And I'm so happy they don't do like a flashback shot or something like they treat me like an intelligent audience. <laughs> right. Not like, oh, there's there's the dream sequence with her golden flowing hair. <laughs> yeah, in case I was like in case I had forgot during the movie I was yeah. watching. Like that makes more sense on a season finale of a TV show, but I hate it when they do that in movies. I've been watching. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, oh my god, that ending is so sad. Mm-hmm. And the way that, like, the, the way the visuals, at least in the movie, have the blood pouring onto her face, like he's crying tears of blood yeah. on her, is so poetic. Mm-hmm. And then and how he almost kills Joanna, too. Oh, like, because God, that she's moment. dressed as a boy to mm-hmm. help conceal her. Anthony's trying to hide her, or Anthony. And then, um, yeah, he, he barely escapes killing her, but then, um, yeah, someone bursts in. He wouldn't, he doesn't even recognize her. He wouldn't. She was a baby when he was gone. Now Mm -hmm. she's like 15 or 16. And that moment where they're all in the same room together again. And Mm -hmm. the like dramatic irony of we know it after maybe a subsequent viewing of the film. And they don't. Is she is Joanna's in the trunk. Lucy's right there standing in front of him. And Sweeney Todd's there. They're all there. And he doesn't know. He's blinded. Yeah. And they're all in the same house they lived in. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask, I usually ask this, what do you think happens after the end of the musical or the movie or the credits roll? Because the only people, literally the only characters left alive are Toby, Joanna, and Anthony. Well, I guess I would say that uh, Anthony and Joanna go off and start a new Mm -hmm. life together. Um, 
I would imagine that it's very hard for Joanna to have any semblance of a normal life. I mean, she's been through such torture. She's been a ward of this, like, really messed up father figure who... Uh So I don't think that she really knows what love is and how to accept it. And I I would imagine she's just doomed to have a pretty traumatic life um, with all that she's been through. But maybe the change of scenery would do her good. And then Toby, I think, will be fine. Like, he's a scrappy... Really? Well, he's like a really scrappy kid who... um, The fact that he came back, like, he didn't just keep running. He came back because he wanted to avenge the death of his like former master and also just because Sweeney was a homicidal maniac so he wanted to stop that um or put it put an end to his reign of terror I guess but um yeah I I think he would just go on living and maybe bring back the business in a different way with non-human pies that is so interesting. I like your interpretation, and it's so cool how the movie's left so open-ended because I watched it, and I was like, oh, great. Toby's a new Sweeney Todd. It's just the, the cycle. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the now, cycle now, mm-hmm. now he's consumed with the same kind of revenge of, like, oh, Mrs. Lovett was this person I loved, like a mother, mm-hmm. and now she's been killed by Sweeney Todd, and now he has nothing, and he's broken. Right. But... You're, I mean, like what you said, there's an argument to say that he's been through a lot. He mm-hmm. was an orphan at like a work camp and it's heavily implied that he's been abused in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's an argument that says that he could be fine after that. Right. I'm really glad you hit on Joanna because that's that's a theme that I want to get to is she is a child, she is not she's been locked up in a room completely unallowed to basically reading yeah we can only assume or like does it just just looking out the window and imagining life on the street like other than sitting in a room she she's basically in quarantine like we are yes (laughs) but she's never it seems like she's never interacted with anyone except judge turpin or maybe even beetle like he's he's so turpin is so like hyperbole like over the top protective of her Mm -hmm. that even when someone kind of like idly looks in the window for a little bit he's got to invite them in and threaten them and then have his cop like beat him up yeah so i have to imagine she has no idea of the outside world or even like money or how to interact with people and so antony seems benevolent enough that he'll be able to take care of her but there's it, it just seems like for the rest of their life there's that question of like does Joanna actually love Antony? Right. Does she even know if she has a choice no. in the matter? Yeah, she's just like a piece of property. And it's and, and even like Antony, he's just like looking up at her beauty and listening to her voice and and it's all everyone else deciding for her um what her life will be. Yeah. It's a real shame that she doesn't get that much to do. She's effectively a MacGuffin in the movie. That gets maybe two lines, but yeah, yeah, like she's the thing that everyone needs to get to. And then even I understand in the musical, they take whatever, whatever agency she had in the musical, they take away in the movie because in the musical, she's the one who kills the asylum doctor that had them locked up. Oh, I didn't know that. Or I had forgotten that. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Oh, okay. But in the film, the agency's kind of spread around to the people who have been locked up in that room, and they right. all descend all, on him. They and, all attack, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is scary, but it's a shame that 
Joanna didn't get to do anything. Yeah, really. yeah, exactly. The one thing she does is throw a key. That's something right? she does. <laughs> no one told her to do that. And it's like, but why, yeah. how did she get the key? Like, why would you give her the key? I don't know. She just uh, happened to grab it from him one time when he came in her room, Judge Turpin. I don't know. And this like old English fairy tale idea of like, oh, I'm in love with her, even though I don't even know her name. Yep. I don't know what she ta- sounds like. I have yeah. no idea who she is or what she is. We could have nothing in common. But her yellow hair, Christine. Yeah, yes, her yellow hair. It's just, I can't resist. And you I can't just, beat it. I look up at her and I, I see her <laughs> trapped in there and I want to save her. That poor woman. Even well, not after- woman, girl. <laughs> Right, exactly. She's She's 15. 15, She's like at most 16, but still not an adult. She is a child. And she's being treated like that through the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay. So I think Toby is a killer monster now. You think he's going to be fine. I like your interpretation better. Well, I think like he could have teamed up with Sweeney maybe if he if he really wanted to continue his legacy and and just keep I I think he like wanted to stop that because he was horrified by the finger in the pie. And when he saw all of the carcasses, like the the skeletons that were in the uh, (laughs) In the baking area. It's so funny the way that scene ramps up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I remember even, like, as a high schooler sitting in the theaters and going, like, I wish it had been a tooth. That would have been more believable. Right. Because we see the grinder. How did a toe make it all the way through the grinder? (laughs) And then once he sees the the toe, it's like, oh, that pile of rib cages in the corner? Did you see that? (laughs) Did you see the hands on top of the grinder? Yeah. But that's when, like, the tone shifts Mm -hmm. to, like, a hard horror movie. I love that. Yeah, well, and that's when he knows, too, like, uh, Mrs. Lovett is in on it, and she's, like, he he says no one's going to harm you and believes her when she sings that to him, which is such a beautiful song. Like, It's one of my favorites. Yeah, and then he realizes she's not to be trusted, and he's got to run away. And yeah, and that she's locked him in there. So yeah, so so that actually raises another question. Uh, I love how you know most of the characters are pretty evil, but there's still an open-ended argument to explore like alternative interpretations. Mm-hmm. Like Mrs. Lovett in particular is one of the more questionable, in my opinion. Does Mrs. Lovett lie to Sweeney Todd because she's? desperately lonely like the movie shows and she just has this like kind of like ted bundy charles manson like stalker (laughs) love for this crazy guy or is she just trying to save her business i think that she wouldn't necessarily have been in on this whole murderous plot unless sweeney had started it like i i think she was just like obsessed with him and and definitely withheld the truth from him on purpose because yeah. she was desperately in love with him and in her strange way. And I think that she just did his bidding to keep him around. And like, I think you're yeah. I think you're right, because the like stepping stones of it is it's not like she came to him and said, You should start killing people so right. I can feed yes. my shop. Yeah. She kind of floated <laughs> out the idea that she's been trying to get cats and that times like there's this theme throughout the whole thing of like Times are so bad that people are like resorting to cannibalism to survive, but th- 
Mrs. Lovett and Todd aren't so poor that they're homeless. They still have a bed and a right. roof over their head. They're not mm-hmm. like um, Lucy, who's a beggar, but yeah. we never see Lucy eating rats or something like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's this air of like, oh my gosh, we're starving, but also let's sing and dance. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and it 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 comes to uh, it, it comes to a head in the song like um, have a little priest because I guess. Right. When yeah. she first, because when she first welcomes him, it's just, oh, it's nice to have you back. I'm in love with you. Uh, stick around. Mm-hmm. Then he kills somebody, and she's like, well, God, this sucks. Um, <laughs> shoot, what are we gonna do about this problem with this crazy guy? I still love him. Mm-hmm. He's crazy, but I still love him. What are we gonna do? Oh, let's cook the people. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like a plan she had. It's just something. It was just a yeah. problem, and she found a solution to it. Yeah, like she, she's pretty amoral but she's like she she's definitely not a victim uh of of like you know just going to do his bidding she she has those tendencies as well obviously um but there is that sort of weird tenderness to her and that she does care about toby um and that she really does want them to just go beyond uh by the sea like that's her real goal with all of this killing and stuff that sequence was so cool and just how all of a sudden there's color uh-huh. And just like her with her parasol on the on the pier and um like and four costume like, changes. Right. And then Sweeney's very reluctantly going along <laughs> with it, but he's he's like a corpse, like just sitting there and not moving or doing anything and letting her like move him around or um I love that. Yeah. Honestly, like I talked about how there's the musical interpretation of Sweeney Todd being this like big baritone, but this version of Johnny Depp being this like skinny little waif of a man mm-hmm. like almost gives more credence to like some of, some of the like um less social people I went to high school with mm-hmm. you know there were these skinny kind of like kept to themselves wore a lot of black yeah. um looked like they'd never slept in their life right and and he whenever like there's moments in the movie that whenever he's not actively fueled by his rage he's a zombie Mm-hmm. He, like, can't function, and Mrs. Lovett has to, like, push him around the house right. to get him to do stuff. Oh, yeah, like, he's totally given up on life, and it and it makes sense. Like, he's 15 years in prison, so it makes sense that he's, like, thin and um, not, you know, attacking every day with gusto. He's He's just sort of, okay, well, I'm resigned to believe that the world is a horrible place and the, the black pit, and okay, well, at least I can get my revenge. Yeah, which is punctuated so great that his killing spree, when he's ostensibly being the most murderous, he's completely checked out and he doesn't care. And he's yeah. singing about Joanna and he's doing it just so like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> so then why don't we move into uh, the next segment, which I like to call Screaming Themies, where we talk <laughs> about some of the themes that came up in this movie. Mm-hmm. We've already hit on a couple of them, but I want to start with um, the revenge and vengeance theme that's so... Mm-hmm obvious and in the forefront so sweeney blinded by rage does nothing to save his daughter when he learns she's alive mm-hmm. unless it is somehow also going to kill judge turpin right that's yeah. a secondary objective saving joanna his first objective is to kill judge turpin even though he knows joanna is alive antony is more concerned with running around town and yeah. in fact i love the moment where he goes up to his uh uh, barbershop, he pulls back the um, crib and sees his daughter's doll. Right. 
but is distracted when Mrs. Lovett pulls out his knives and then decides to sing about that. I mean, I don't need to tell you that in a musical, the music is supposed to represent moments when the characters are so full of emotion that they can't contain it Mm -hmm. and they have to sing it out loud. And so if you interpret that for Sweeney, the moments that he's most emotional and excited is when he sees his knives again. Yeah, he loves his knives. They're they're his friends. I guess they're the, the one thing in his life he can control he knows what they're capable of and what they're going to do and they're not going to turn their back on him yeah that's what makes the moment when Sacha Baron Cohen's character comes in and says I remembered you because of your knives Mm. and he has that like crisis of like but but they're my friends how could they betray me Mm -hmm. and and he's so perfect Sacha Baron Cohen I had forgotten he was (laughs) in the movie so when I rewatched I was like yes um, and I remember yeah. he had just come off of Borat from this. So this yeah. was my first time seeing him like <laughs> as an actor and he's still being really silly as the yeah, Italian. Totally. Yeah. And, that, and that's what makes it less horrifying. Like the whole film and even the blood itself, it's, it's looks like red paint. Like it's very uh-huh. viscous and, and it's, so and it's, it's got it's that not as like realistic. So it's less, it's got uh, that kill horrifying. bill style too. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that makes it a little less the gory way it for me. Out. Yeah, yeah, totally. If it was if it was more realistic, it would be way more traumatizing to watch. I'd probably have to turn away. Yeah, like the first one with Sasha Baron Cohen is probably the hardest one to watch. Mm-hmm. It's so deep oh, and yeah. the way he like gurgles. Yes. Yeah, the Ugh. the foley sounds are are perfect. <laughs> Perfectly yeah. horrifying. And um I thought it was interesting how like on on my last rewatch with this movie, I realized that Anthony and Sweeney Todd are the first characters to be introduced and are thus kind of like two opposites that go through the movie on the same course but choose two different ways. Mm-hmm. Anthony has the same crisis of revenge in Judge Turpin, you know, beating him up and keeping Joanna away from him. Inversely. Sweeney Todd knows Judge Turpin has Joanna and is out for revenge. And it's the moment when Antony runs up to Judge Turpin when he's having her, when Judge Turpin is having her whisked away to the insane asylum. He runs up and Antony's like, oh, tell me where you're going, Orel. And he goes, you'll what? Kill me, boy? Here I stand. Right. And Antony chooses instead to go search for Joanna instead of killing Judge Turpin, which was Mm -hmm. essentially Sweeney Todd's whole mission. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what runs, ultimately rewards him. Yeah, runs after her to to catch up with her because that's the more important thing. And and Alan Rickman, I have to say, it I it made me really miss him because he's so perfect as a villain. You gandered. <laughs> you gandered. Not, yes, no. you gandered. She, she faced me with a certain <laughs> reluctance. Like his choice of words. It's so perfect. Perhaps I have been a bit hasty in the mornings. Yes. <laughs> Every line. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. His dialogue, I think it's supposed to represent, you know, like his position in society, but he speaks so erudite compared to everybody else. Oh, and the disgusting way he runs his fingers on the books as he's like, the concubines of Siam. (laughs) So perfect. (laughs) And yeah. He's he can do so little, and just with a look, you're like, "Ooh, delicious!" And his voice is just so perfect, and like, I, Severus Snape. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, it definitely it definitely made me think of some of those greater moments where perhaps Mr. Potter and yeah. his friends were simply in the wrong place at yes. the wrong time. And, and I love their duet, like he and Johnny Depp, the pretty women. It's one of the most tonal, musical, like mm-hmm. pleasant parts of it. There's almost no dissonance. It's so great. Yeah, just like the two of them, like they they really have a lot in common despite being enemies. Like they're both just you know, controlled by their like fragile male egos and, and not wanting to like, that's why he doesn't let Joanna have any freedom. He needs to have control over everything and why he banished Sweeney Todd or Benjamin Barker to get his wife. And they have then, the same type. Yeah. Yeah. They both <laughs> like the same kind of woman. I love the yellow hair. Yellow hair. Yeah. It's interesting. They don't say blonde. It's like yellow hair. <laughs> Yeah, I would not describe it as yellow. Like, if someone's walking around with yellow hair, it would look like a highlighter, I would think. <laughs> yes, totally. Neon so I love, the, I love the poetic justice of that the revenge ultimately destroys Sweeney Todd. He was destroyed before he even arrived on London. Once he, like, decided, oh, I'm calling myself Sweeney Todd now, that's when he was gone. But mm-hmm. it literally cost him his wife to kill Judge Turpin. Twice. Yeah, right. Three mm-hmm. times, you might even say. Mm-hmm. Um, but this isn't really a theme of revenge and vengeance, but I did want to just highlight that. I love that Lucy managed to raise Joanna on her own without Sweeney Todd, without Benjamin Barker for a while. It's not like in Star Wars where, oh no, my husband's gone. I have no will to live anymore. No, she had a child, so she did a good job. And it wasn't until Judge Turpin tricked her and did a horrible thing in a public setting that she snapped mm-hmm. but i wanted to i wanted to make sure that like there's notice given to the stanza of time where she was able to take care of her daughter and live a life on her own in this horrible misogynistic society yeah and so i wanted to ask you is this a misogynist movie or story uh, definitely <laughs> because the women are either toys or treacherous yeah i think that um but it's, you know, it's a product of the time and it's, mm-hmm. and I think in a way though, it's also making a comment on the ridiculousness of that too. Um, but it is definitely a misogynistic world that they're living in where women don't have their own agency. I guess if anyone like Mrs. Lovett does, and she could have turned against Sweeney and decided she owns her own to, business. yeah, she could have very successful business and she could have turned <laughs> against, um, she she could have turned against Sweeney and like gone off with Toby or um done you know just done her own thing but she was so in love with him and i i think that's also to do with being maybe a, a single woman or they don't they don't really comment on that and if she would have like she still seemed to have status and was able yeah. to get her own money Without There's having a, couple, a husband. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a throwaway line or two about her husband, her late husband. Oh, but okay. it's only in reference to him being fat and how he liked to eat, which does not imply <laughs> that he was helping the business more than he was hurting it. She just fed him so much he died. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He died and took the business with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Um, and and it's more so because of Joanna and then and Lucy and there was no way for her to really like get mental health help. <laughs> she mm-hmm. was just this crazy vagrant woman. She's um, lucky she wasn't committed. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder why she wasn't. Because they uh, they seem to take a lot of the women. There were a lot of women in there in that. Yeah. Uh, in that no, this pivots asylum. In, 
exactly. This pivots into my next theme of corruption. And like, there's this umbrella kind of like meta discussion about the haves and have nots in this society. And, you know, you can always, unfortunately, I feel like throughout any era, pick up on these themes and they're pretty universal of class inequality. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, have a little priest is where it like is the biggest example of it. They have that line of how gratifying for us to know that those above will sort of those down below. Like what a novel thought that (laughs) the rich would actually contribute to society and taxes and Mm -hmm. all of those things. How crazy. (laughs) And so it's like this desperation, this, this like, um, what is it? It's like a uh, a core resentment for the upper class. It's something I've been saying for years. Eat the rich. And mm-hmm. they actually do it. It's yep. great. There you it's go. really validating. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's just like speaking about corruption, like Judge Turpin seems to be the only authority in the town. And, and then when he sentences that young boy to death, <laughs> like... What is it's played for a laugh. Like, he doesn't really care. He just has ultimate power. It's played for a laugh, but that moment's yeah. really, it really hits home how, because yeah. cause we have varying degrees of evil in the movie, you know, like pure evil and then like created evil. Judge Turpin is pure evil yeah. mm-hmm. because of his status. Yeah. There, there, there isn't any, there is no point in like examining why Judge Turpin is the way he is. He just mm-hmm. is the top of the, the pyramid and uses his, um you know, his, police force beetle to uh, enforce mm-hmm. his terrible laws yeah and it's once again unfortunately very familiar yeah mm-hmm. dictatorship yeah because that's that's essentially what it is i don't know what the the governing body was like in 1846 england you get a lot of sense that it's like the beginning of the industrial revolution mm-hmm. the clouds are constantly overcast with factories in the background pumping up mm-hmm. plumes of smoke yeah but um, but there's no cars yet. Everything is still fire lanterns and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Uh, like yeah. the world is so perfectly created. It's just so dark. And I was watching some of the behind the scenes footage and it's all like in color. And then there's this like, cause I was wondering, is it all green screen? And they somehow made the costumes look really just gray, but it's, it must be like a filter they're using on the lens. Or yeah. That post. blew my mind. That yeah. blew my mind. They said that they had to, all of the blood in the movie was orange, bright orange. Okay. And so that it would look like red blood once they put the saturation filter oh, okay. on it. But gotcha. you're right. So that's how they do it. And okay. it's, exactly. And it's the most obvious during the Beyond the Sea sequence because the filters removed for everything except the three of them. And that's mm-hmm. why they looked so pale. They look like a, a Tim Burton sketch yeah. come to life. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's very much like Johnny Depp looks like Edward Scissorhands and like he he plays like a very similar um, character in all of the Tim Burton films. In Ichabod Crane, like there is that darkness, that intensity, um, even when he's like a good character like Edward Scissorhands. So there is it's, that like, yeah, tortured it's- tortured quality (laughs) and and of course tim burton worked with johnny depp on edward scissorhands so it's hard to Mm -hmm. imagine that they didn't you know draw some inspirations from that he looks so similar oh yeah the aesthetic is like runs throughout all of like tim and he kills people with knives yeah yeah and he's a barber (laughs) yeah yeah blades and and like crazy hair and 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 like deep dark pensive eyes (laughs) and there's even the same kind of like societal commentary in both of those movies Mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, like, um, let's get Edward Scissorhands the musical. That would be pretty cool. He wouldn't get to sing, but that would be pretty fun still. Class uh, inequality is kind of Judge Turpin's milieu. He enjoys this disgusting, wanton lasciviousness that everyone seems to know him for because of his place in society. I mean, look at the awful masquerade party in Poor Thing, Mm -hmm. where everyone... uh, they all thought she was daft, you see. So all of them stood there and laughed, you see. It's mm. like, oh, how could you? How could you turn down Judge Turpin? He's yeah. so great, and he's got such high status. Yeah. She must be crazy. <laughs> like that kind of. It's supposed to be a hyperbole. It's supposed to be a fairy tale. But we have people like, um, Doctor Bill Cosby. And you know, with cancel culture the way it is, and how important it is that there's a lot of. A lot of very powerful people that abuse their power, and while they are guilty, the people who let it happen and just think like, well, you know, like, what a great opportunity they're getting, though, are just as culpable. Oh, God. This is, like, taking a turn. No, I I just absolutely there are people who enable it and and, uh, enable these predators, monsters, and I guess, like, in real life that's where you you can't have a laugh whereas with Sweeney Todd it's just it's so absurd that no one questions the authority and that and and like that all Judge Turpin needs is a shave and then he'll be more attractive to women like despite the fact that he's a horrible person Mm -hmm. um yeah I don't know if you experience the same catharsis that I do when it's it's the idea of like, you know, being a, a shoe shine boy and the rich popper comes over with his muddy boots and you work all fucking afternoon to clean those boots and he gives you a wood nickel because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, who cares about them? And like extrapolate that to for-profit prisons today. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it just, I would not say that, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that this movie is trying to incite violence and it is very cathartic to see Imagine a Rose McGowan getting a Harvey Weinstein in a barbershop chair. And who knows what might happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, because he's, I guess maybe that would be more like Dexter, where he's going after the bad people. And so you're on his side because you're rooting for him to go after these evil people. Whereas with Sweeney, he's just killing anybody, not necessarily the evil people. Um, but then, obviously, Judge Turpin and uh, and his horrible assistant, like getting them, getting revenge by killing them, is something we can all get behind. But with everyone else, there, I, I I was actually thinking, like, imagine you were cast just to have your throat slit, and that was just your role, like victim number one, victim number two, like just to come in and have Johnny Depp slit your throat. So that'd be pretty cool. It's like, like being a dead body on yeah, CSI or something. Yeah, exactly. Just what's your audition like? Just uh, <laughs> just sit relaxed and not thinking anything's going to happen. And then and then give us a good gargle to show us like how you would die. That's what I think about, like the naked bodies in Westworld. Like, oh, those poor people had to come in and go like, this is it. Yeah. Like any <laughs> good body. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's interesting how they play with kind of that like popularized, um, I I don't know if it's a Western ideal necessarily since this is a British story and I think of Machiavelli, but revenge being this like, um, get out of jail free card that, oh, if someone 
was going to do something bad to you, then stand your ground. Of course you have every right to murder them. It's what Mrs. Lovett does, where she's like, you killed Pirelli? Mm -hmm. And he's like, he tried to blackmail me, and she's like, oh, well, that's understandable. Yeah, right, that's a whole other story. Yeah, and just revenge doesn't make you feel good. It's Mm -mm. like, then what do you do? Um, And and it's in fact... Yeah, well, it's, just that it's he what could we, have had his wife back, and he could yes. have had his daughter back, but he was so blinded by rage that he missed that. Yes, that there's another version of this where Benjamin Barker comes back to London, visits Judge Turpin, and is like, hey, it's me. No hard feelings. Sorry about all of that. <laughs> no um, I'm just going to go by to my barber shop. And Let's then- bury the hatchet. <laughs> and then maybe you know Lucy would have come going around and going like, "Who's that Becker woman? Hey, I recognize yeah, you." And everything would have worked out. <laughs> and it's weird because the Becker woman, she doesn't seem to recognize that that's Benjamin Barker. Like even though that's her house, like her, her yeah. apartment, and then it's only when she's up close to him that she realizes, "Oh, I know you." It's like it's like um dementia or Alzheimer patients sometimes just like putting them in a familiar place sometimes sparks kind yeah. of the familiar memories. Yeah. Um but I want to race to our to my last theme which is love and the difference between familial love and romantic love and unfortunately unrequited love. Mm-hmm. All three are on display and there might even be more that I haven't thought of but it's it sucks how many people <laughs> love someone who doesn't love them back. Mm-hmm. There's so many. Judge Turpin loves Joanna, but Joanna loves Anthony. Toby loves Mrs. Lovett, but Mrs. Lovett loves Sweeney Todd. Mrs. Lovett loves Sweeney Todd, but Sweeney Todd loves murder. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Or Lucy. <laughs> well, I think like Judge Turpin isn't capable of love. I think he just wants no. to control Joanna and prevent her from having a life with like that's why he decides he wants to marry her, just so he can control her even more and and have like ownership of her as as her husband. Um but yeah, it's love and it's it's very twisted in this. I think that Toby is probably the only person, Toby and Antony, but even then with Antony, like he doesn't really know Joanna, but that's like a lot of musicals where it's just, I see you and I'm in love with you. (laughs) And we just accept that. Um, It's like what they make fun of in Frozen. Like, will you marry me? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Toby, he, he really wants that familial love like you were talking about him being an orphan and and he's just had to fight for every little scrap of attention he's gotten and just to survive and on the streets and then putting up with the abuse from Pirelli and then finally he he has a purpose like working with Mrs. Lovett and and that really beautiful tender song like no one's gonna harm you like it's such a departure from the rest of the music in the show yeah that it's this pure moment and she's very resistant to it and like just kind of like poo-poos him like there's no negative forces like what are you talking about you don't need to protect me from anything uh, i love then, how yeah she decides love, to keep with sweeney yes i love how in that moment sweeney todd is during the song nothing's gonna harm you sweeney todd is literally hovering right hovering right above her head mm-hmm. while she's dealing with this crisis of I am, I, Mrs. Lovett, in searching so desperately for love out of Sweeney Todd that I can't decide if the love that is already here screaming at me Mm -hmm. to love it back and run away with it is is worth it. And uh, my fiance actually pointed out is that while uh, Toby is singing, she's going around her house and looking at pieces of her family. She's looking at a photo of her parents and she looks at a photo of her dead husband and she's wrestling with 
here's my chance to grab familial love back mm-hmm. and, you know, live there. And in the end, she chooses the revenge and Sweeney. And mm-hmm. that's that's what leads to her own demise at mm-hmm. Sweeney's hands. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that familial love. Because Toby loves Mrs. Lovett like a mother. Yeah. Sweeney loves Lucy like a like a, a wife. And I would call that familial love more than romantic love in that situation. And Lucy in her like state still loves Joanna and Sweeney Todd. She doesn't know where she is, but she still watches over Joanna. Antony's the one that goes over to her and is like, who is that? And mm-hmm. the beggar lady is like, oh, that's Judge Turpin's. She still, she doesn't have her mind, but some part of her still watches over her family. Mm, I like that. Which is so yeah. sad. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. of course, the romantic love of Antony's love for Joanna, I would say, is not lustful, but isn't, like, he loves her. He's not, like, a familial love in the same way that Mrs. Lovett and Toby, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's, like, he, like underwent that horrible beating and like he subjected uh-huh. himself to the torture from Turpin and like going in as the wig maker and putting himself in danger to rescue her. So he, he has her best interest at heart as much as he can in this like weird misogynistic world that we're in. But yeah. I think that he, he genuinely cares about her and like wants to build a life with her. But I guess like in that time too, like people would just get married like their parents would put them together and and like it wasn't based on love so he, i mean he's, he's a, a sailor. romantic he's a romantic sorry he's a <laughs> yeah he's a sailor yeah yeah you know <laughs> but so he, he might a do this one woman sailor he wasn't going <laughs> after right. all the ladies but he's also so young like the guy who plays him looks like maybe 17 yeah it's funny which how is, young which makes it better if like because she's 15, you don't want him to be, like, 35. <laughs> no, no, that'd be, that'd be weird. And and even there, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Um, I, I just love that corruption is everywhere. And Sweeney Todd establishes that London is corrupted by greed, but he, Todd is ultimately corrupted by his revenge. And if not, it comes down to, in my opinion, a decision for each character that the corruption you cannot avoid. You can't escape it. You can't upturn the system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an anarchy uh, movie. They're not going to revolt. You can decide how the corruption that surrounds you every day af- affects you and mm-hmm. what you will do with that. You can either choose to be a murderous, rampaging monster like Sweeney Todd, or you can choose to kind of take that energy and go make a life for yourself like yeah. Toby wanted to or like... Uh, Antony and Joanna probably will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's it's a great example of like it doesn't matter how vilified you feel, vengeance and revenge corrupts. Like yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah, and he can't recognize any of the love around him. Like he can't recognize the love from Mrs. Lovett. And um because you know, she keeps asking him like uh, like I, we could build a life together, and and he's still so preoccupied with the revenge that he just keeps pushing that away, and then also he can't recognize his own daughter, he can't recognize his own wife. So it's like just symbolic of the fact that he just can't re- like. There's no love in his life. It's yeah. There's no room for that, and he's incapable of accepting it or really seeing it. So. Yeah, the only time he feels joy is when he feels like he's been freed to commit wanton murders all over town. And mm-hmm. he says, I'm full of joy. He screams, I'm full of joy with rage. It's beautiful. <laughs> yes, the irony. 
So now we've come to the last segment where we rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. Christine, how are you going to rate Sweeney Todd? Mm, I would say like four and a half. Okay. Because, you know, it's it's hard to say five. You never want to yeah. like give something a perfect score, but it's it's pretty... They've done a really wonderful job with the material, staying true to the musical while also using that Tim Burton flair. Like it's still, it's obviously like Stephen Sondheim's musical, but it's still also very much like that touch of Tim Burton that you recognize right away. So I think it's, um, it finds that balance between preserving the musical itself and also injecting this new um, version with the Tim Burton touch. And, and the, yeah, and like just the acting, the cast is uh, spectacular and the art direction, like the world is just so perfectly clear and that darkness and then those little moments of color that are immediately draw your eye, that very, um, very symbolic. <laughs> I agree. It's not a perfect movie, but what mm -hmm. movie is? Yeah. I'm just surprised how well it like still holds up. Yeah. But yeah, and, and just like the way that they create the um like her little restaurant and all of the people in the uh and oh that once I I have to like that one sequence where he's realizing that he can uh, kill all these people by coming in to get a shave and he goes around and all the people are frozen. Like he just walks through the the alleyways and on the street. I loved that. that yeah, a where great way uh, to the make it filmic, where the extras are kind of like walking around him. Oh, yeah. It feels yeah, it's it's kind of jarring at first, where mm -hmm. you're like, wait, what what is happening? And then you know they flash back to where he is. Yeah, and how. I don't, I don't know if you picked up on it, but just the music sounds a little disjointed, how it mm -hmm. kind of, it sounds like maybe they cut out a line or something as he whips to, and my Lucy, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> and I actually read something um, like that Stephen Sondheim tried to evoke the same feeling of the music in a Hitchcock movie, which makes oh. total sense to have like those really jarring, sharp, like string phrases um, to put you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, um, that like no 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 that starts. <laughs> so then we typically award our thumbs to either uh, cast members or crew or even characters in the movie. So who are you going to award those four and a half thumbs to? Let's see. I really love Helena Bonham Carter. I think that she's yeah. There's just so many moments. Um, just the, her acting is so like she's such a terrific actress and I love her portrayal of this character and her accent her singing like she's not an amazing singer but that's not necessarily um something that makes this musical it's like the truthfulness of her and and just like it makes sense that Mrs. Lovett is is a little wonky and has a unique singing voice and yeah she really captures her essence oh I totally agree. Uh, I feel like of all the characters, she has the most room for decisions mm. and stuff in her character. Uh, Johnny Depp's Sweeney Todd is very much just a revenant, a zombie. He has mm -hmm. one goal in mind, and the most he's allowed to do is scream in joy. Right. But 
uh, Helena Bonham Carter is the one that we're watching the whole time because she's the only one who's like, if Sweeney Todd is the child behind the steering wheel, she's the mother who could stop him. Mm-hmm. And she's carrying that in everything she does through her performance. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. And, and she, it was. Oh, a, oh, I was just gonna, sorry. I was just going to add how she stops Sweeney. Like you talked about her driving him or like changing his mind. Like she stops him from killing Toby. Like she said, oh, he can be useful to us. He can work for us. Yeah. And so she does She does a great job, like, using that character's energy to influence as much as she can with this guy. And she does a great job in, like, it was a controversial decision to hire non-singers like Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp. But like you said, this it, it, the movie is not about a great singing performance. It's mm-hmm. about whittling down source material into a package that not only, like you put it so well, not only uh, maintains what Stephen Sondheim uh, set out to do and Hugh Wheeler set out to do with their original, while perfectly mixing in what Tim Burton brings to the table. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of another example where, yeah, it's this beautiful magic marriage between the two where both look like they were equally represented in mm-hmm. like a, a, a good way. So yeah. it's a Sondheim movie and it's a Tim Burton movie. I would never say it's one or the other. Yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to rate this movie. Gosh, <laughs> it's, it's a shame. I, there are some sequences that, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to point fingers, but there were three people who had their uh, film debut in this movie. Mm. Uh, Joanna, Anthony, and Toby Makes were sense. all yep. non-film actors before mm-hmm. this, and Toby does a great job. Mm-hmm. I really want to say uh, Ed Sanders does a great job, and there are just some moments that don't really carry the uh, emotional resonance that I want to be feeling in some of those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same goes for. Um, Anthony, sometimes he's, I can see his like body trying to show me the urgency, right. but there's something is missing yeah. in the eyes. Something I, I is agree. missing. Yeah. I think Toby so, too was fairly like, fairly one note. Like there wasn't like the, he, most of his really tender moments were through the singing, but yeah. there wasn't a lot going on in the emotion, but his voice had more emotion to it. Yeah. He does a great job. And yeah, mm-hmm. the nothing's going to harm you. Like that's a difficult song for yeah. that register too. And yeah. he does a great job with it. Yeah. So with, with all of that in mind, I have to get, man, I'm, I'm going to give it four thumbs. Uh, the, the movie as a whole is this awesome story. Like, I still listen to the music today. Mm. I still, like, listen in my car, and I'm still singing along to it, and it's so good. And so it stands the test of time in that way. Um, the The movie itself is, like, it's amazing how they create a period piece that still feels like a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, just by design, it is boring to look at and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be very gray and drab and discolored and stuff um but that had me looking at my phone a couple of times during some of the lower moments unfortunately (laughs) so like as much as i remember this movie there are some like lower moments and that's what's going to keep it from putting it into the five thumbs uh, range for me so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna give it four thumbs but i'm going to give I'm going to give one of my thumbs to Timothy Spall because this was the first time I had ever seen him in a movie as the Beatle, as uh, mm-hmm. Beatle Bamford. Mm-hmm. And he is so gross. Yeah. And this, this 
disgusting egg-shaped man who is completely <laughs> mad with his little scraps of power that he gets thrown by Judge Turpin. And I remember just carrying his name around with me in high school of like, I want to see more of that guy. Yeah. He's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he always plays that kind of character. Yeah, I loved it when he popped up again in um, Ella Enchanted. He was funny there. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, or not Ella Enchanted. It, just Enchanted. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> That's right. Because he was in a Harry uh, Potter movie too, like very. That's similar. right. He and, was Scabbers. Yeah, yeah, and like, and then Alan Rickman as well. Uh huh. So that that their team. I guess that was probably before they did Harry Potter. Um, I think yes. Harry Potter had started because I think Snape was in one of the Harry Potters before this one, oh, okay. but it was before right. the Prisoner of Azkaban where they introduced Timothy Spall right. as Peter Pettigrew. Which was a very similar world, like the Prisoner of mm-hmm. Azkaban, that darkness. Um, very gray. Yeah, so very similar to the aesthetic of this this movie. Yeah. So that's one thumb. I'm going to give another thumb to... Uh, Anthony, because even though I just said that he doesn't have that much going on in the <laughs> eyes, he still does a good job portraying the like um, naive innocence that maybe Benjamin Barker once felt as a kid when he right. was with Lucy. Yeah. And that carries through to like, like I said, this beautiful um, antithesis to Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. And without that, I mean, without Anthony's cherubic performance, we wouldn't have that. So I'm going to mm-hmm. give him a thumb. Uh, I'm going to give a thumb to Lucy because I love, and it became kind of an inside joke of saying, mischief, mischief, mischief. <laughs> Just the way she said mischief. Give her a thumb. <laughs> and then I wish I could give one to Johnny Depp, but I really want to give it to Helena Bonham Carter because mm-hmm. how awkward must it have been to audition for your boyfriend's movie where <laughs> Do you everyone. Think she auditioned, though? Did she? Yes, yeah, so, she did. Yes, so they were okay. dating, and to avoid all of the like discomfort that that would have given, she auditioned to Tim Burton. Oh, okay. With Sondheim, mm. and so Sondheim and Tim Burton watched her audition tapes. Okay. And agreed. No, no, no. She is the best for the right, part. Right. But God, could you imagine having to put an audition tape yeah. for like your your lover? But I guess. <laughs> want to do that just in case people were like oh like she only got it because of tim burton but like i would have assumed that yeah which I'm like, i know i assume too but also because she's amazing yeah um, and she can really do anything so it makes and sense i don't see that what's that character and i don't see what the difference is between working with helena bottom carter your girlfriend versus working with johnny depp your best friend mm-hmm. like the relationship, I guess, isn't as physical, but why is it no less like, wait, how is Johnny Depp the most talented for this Tim Burton movie yeah. again? I still <laughs> thought he was great, even though, I mean, it's it's not a role that requ- that requires like a ton of depth, but it's just like you see how much stillness is required in, in film acting. Like even when it is a musical, like it's still, it's just so much subtlety, like the a little flinch in your mouth or a little tilt of your head and and it's like a huge movement and so in a way like the way that it's so gray makes you focus more on the actors too oh definitely i like that interpretation is dead and so they're Mm. like the living things in this dead world yeah even the affluent just kind of wander around aimlessly we don't know where they're going or where they've been they just have a top hat and a cane and are going somewhere Well, that is Sweeney Todd. So, Christine, if people wanted to find you online, where yes. could they follow you? So, on Instagram at Ms. Christine Aziz. So, that's where I've been posting 
I like to do little character videos every now and again, and I'll post them on there. I've got a blue screen and some wigs that I like to play around with now and again. The quarantine classic. Yes. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Gory Days and talking about Sweeney Thank Todd and musicals. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to have you back on the show once uh, Paris's podcast takes off. Yeah, it was just great to like really reinvigorate my love of musicals and my passion for musicals by watching this again. So, oh, and it was great to relive some of my high school days back when I couldn't get the lead to Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So instead, (laughs) they cast me as Potiphar. Potiphar, very Very Yes, we did that actually in yeah, my Catholic elementary school. We did that. And because the narrator is such a big role, we actually split it. There were two of us that played the narrator. Very nice. Very smart. A That's role. a really yeah. demanding role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that show. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about that. Sure. The, the horror they, version of Joseph. The, which like the there horror is, of there are of, some pretty uh, horrible elements to it. Like they thought Joseph like his brothers tried to kill him. Yeah, that part's pretty pretty shocking, and then they sell him pretty quickly. That's one of yeah. my favorite songs, too, where they sell him. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of The Gory Days. Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days!